lifepodcasts.fm. This podcast is a Prime Media Broadcasting production. People are reshaping the mindset of the masses. Africa State of Mind. On this episode of Africa State of Mind, we spend time with Nigerian-born Chude Jidewono. Chude is a lawyer, journalist, and media entrepreneur. He's co-founder of The Future Project, which is focused on inspiring leadership, building entrepreneurs, and using the media as a tool for social change. He's also responsible for helping a handful of African presidents get into power. He told us about his passion for Africa. Africa's people need to be connected. It shouldn't be so difficult for me to know what's happening with a young person. I shouldn't be more familiar with what's happening in Tennessee or in, in Los mm. Angeles than I am with what's happening in Yaoundé or, you know, in Malindi. You mm. know, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. There is a disconnection. Chude also told us why he doesn't have a message for some of Africa's current leaders. Honestly, I have no advice for them. <laughs> I have no advice for them because... A leader who chooses to subjugate his people is not someone that will be open to reason. But let's start from the beginning. Where did this inspirational person grow up and what influenced him to be who he is now? Let's hear what he says. I grew up in Lagos. Area. I grew up uh, um, in a place called Ijesha, just by a, a, an open canal. Mm. Um, and I think that the thing that I'm, I mean, it was, it was the end of the family itself. It was a very... Happy childhood. I had both parents. I was the only child, so they could focus and invest in me. Um, you know, they were well read. You know, it was a very um, beautiful family in itself. It wasn't poor. It wasn't. We were not poor. We were not rich. We were just kind of, you know, dancing on the edges of uh, of, of one of it. Um, but what I remember very clearly about my childhood, having a sense of powerlessness, and that's and I've spoken about this before, mm. in terms of Nigeria itself, mm. in terms of uh, the country itself, there's just a sense of, you know, my destiny is into my control, mm. and this country is run by certain elements, you know, and I don't matter, you know, and you just get this sense. And I remember growing up, and I, I can't forget one day coming back from school, I was in primary school at the time, such that I'd maybe seven or eight, and I was coming back by myself, and the bus had just dropped me, and I was passing by the market, and I saw a dead a dead man. Now, sure. I knew the man because he was a bus conductor, mm. uh, and I can't ever forget that image. He was lying on the floor, he was eating, he just finished eating, mm. and the plate was down, and you know, there was some meat coming out of his mouth, and you know, he had just been abandoned there. And everybody else was moving. You know, I think this was normal. Mm. And I just knew that that image was done in my head. Like, this is not normal. This is not how a country should be. And, you know, I think on an unconscious level, I grew up. I, you know, some of these dots you can only connect in hindsight. Mm. I grew up thinking, I want to be able to, one, have control over my own destiny. Mm. And two, I don't want to live in a country where a person can just die on the road and be abandoned. Mm. And I would be unable to do anything about it. Sure. You know, I for me too. Yeah. Oh, that's such a powerful image. I mean, when you say it, you know, I think um, as as hard as it is, uh, you know, seeing somebody just dying on the road and people continue walking, I kind of feel, unfortunately, so many. Mm-hmm. The world has just moved into a place where we see so many atrocities in general. And people feel powerless and people keep on, you know, just carrying kind of walking past, which is why it's always exciting to see um, young people involved in kind of, you know, 
in in the public service space more than anything else. Um, now I, yes. I, I then yes. wanted to ask. Yes. Uh, I know that you've told this story a thousand times, but for, perhaps for listeners um, who are outside of Nigeria, mm-hmm. although you guys are pretty much uh, aren't you like Pan African mm-hmm. of life? But um, you know, how did uh, you and Adebola actually uh, start? How did you guys meet, and then how did you guys decide to kind of work together? Was it something that just happened, um, or what, what, what's the story behind that? Mm-hmm. You know, I always say that. So, you know, people, there are many questions a lot of young people ask me, and I say that you know, I know that they want to get an answer that this is the way to do it, but sometimes the universe is defined by randomness mm-hmm. or luck or opportunities or, like religious people would call it, grace. Mm-hmm. And Adebola, I think Adebola was one of those things. You know, I've learned some things about partnership. I've been lucky that this has been my partner for so long. But actually, choosing, actually finding him as a partner was just, was just sheer luck. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we were both had a TV recorded for a talk show at the time called Inside Out with Agatha. Mm-hmm. And we just so happened to have sat together. Mm-hmm. And so as the, the show was going on, we began to have an argument about something. And that argument led to a conversation. That conversation led to finding out what do you do, what do you do. And, and that's how we just kind of figured out that oh, both of us have mutual interests. Mm. That's literally how it met. Um, and then I found that he was working with the NTU, which is um, Nigeria's uh, government, um, federal government TV station. And I was also working with NTU, but there, there were two stations for the NTU in Lagos. So I realized there was a show then, and there was a producer of another show called New Dawn at the time. Yeah. And so, you know, so we began to. At the end, we began to just meet and think through what things we do together. And the first idea that we came up with was the Future Awards Africa. And, you know, but while trying to do the Future Awards, you know, we just thought, look, it was difficult to get funding, it was difficult to get funding, it was difficult to get resources. And so for us, it was like, what else could we do? And so we thought, you know what, let's do the company to house the Future Awards and do other things. And that's how, that's how the partnership started. You know, we just found out that we had. Our ideas about the world, our ideas about young people, our ideas about Africa and Nigeria, they just perfectly sent. Mm. So an utter blessing. I, I didn't plan it. I didn't know this is who you should get as a partner. You know, I didn't know. I just, I was just, I wasn't even looking for a partnership. Mm. You know, I knew that was he because he was already in a partnership at the time. But then we just found out that look, we want to do the same things. We want to make the world in the same way we see the same thing. Yeah. And now, I mean, the Future Awards have an awesome legacy. Uh, so congratulations just on that. I just felt that, I, I feel that with the Future Awards, they literally, you. you know, because we sit in a, with with the young people within the continent in general, and it's no shade at all, you know, because I know a lot of these people are your friends. I'm not saying it like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately with young people, when people think mm-hmm. about being able to make a difference in general, all they look at are, you know, the celebrities. Yeah. And the celebrities play their role. So I'm not taking away from that. Yeah. But there's never yeah. uh, enough of a celebration of people yeah. who are doing things, be it in tech, be, you know, in, in all of that stuff with young people. So I think that that's what the Future Awards inherently have given the continent. They've given this mm-hmm. whole um, other side of, um, you know, when you see something being celebrated, you you kind of want yeah. To be a part of it. So I think that that's what I love the most about the future awards that they build mm-hmm. this legacy of, Oh, you know, my, if I do mm-hmm. this and if I'm, you know, perhaps quote unquote a bit of a nerd, I also have a chance, you know, I don't have to be 
you know, a celebrity per mm-hmm. se. So I think that that's what I, I, is so powerful yeah. about the future yeah. was the messaging yeah. around it. Yeah. Now, now. Yes, absolutely. That's, um, that's precisely. No, Chile, go ahead. I said, I said that's precisely what it's about. That's precisely what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And now, um, I then wanted to go straight into. Um, you know, just in terms of some of the work that you guys have done. So, um, you've just turned 34, right? Your birthday was last week or something. Yeah, it was Saturday. Saturday. So you're technically still part of the youth, <laughs> the <Yeah>. under 60% <laughs> within <laughs> Africa. Ah, okay. Yes, but next yes. year is finished or next yes. year, <laughs> next year you're, you're no longer part of the youth. <laughs> So please enjoy the final year. Enjoy it. Hold on to it. Um, but now, um, yes. now yes, we hold on to it. <laughs> you hold on to it for dear life. Um, but now, uh, let's talk about the role of uh, young people within the continent and how important you think uh, the voices of young people are in, when it comes to policy and governance mm. and how they can get actively involved. Um, because we are seeing like awesome stories. I mean, mm. in Botswana, there's a young a minister. She's one of the ministers. She's one of the young. I think in Tanzania, uh, Joe Kate is a governor and she's 31. You know, uh, they're, they're young people who mm. are making strides. There's Vivian Onao who makes addresses to the UN. She's an advocate and she travels around the world meeting with heads of state. So we're seeing a lot of these becoming more, co- more and more common. Mm. In general, why do you think it's important that young people mm. are involved in policy decisions, uh, not only with them speaking out, but with government uh, engaging with young people across the continent when it comes to policy and governance and, and that sort of thing? Well, I mean, the question itself, actually, you know, is self-evident. The reason, part of the reason why young people have become so prominent is because of their share size. You know, um, the percentage of the population that's young means that everywhere a politician or a policymaker looks, a young person is affected by this or that policy. health, mm. it's if it's um, 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 unemployed, if it's employment, if it's industry, if it's um, competitiveness, if it's um, security, you know, um, many of many Nigeria, for instance, many of Boko Haram recruits are obviously young, young people. Um, in South Africa, when there was the protests about University of Ocean, obviously that affects young people. Um, terrorist attacks in, in, in Nairobi disproportionately affect young people. So young people are disproportionately affected by the challenges of the region, mm. of, the, of, the, of the continent. But the second thing is actually democracy. Mm. Because if Africa is defined by dictators, don't need popular support. Mm. Dictators need the tools of power. Mm. And so no matter how... how um, how many the young people are. If the dictator doesn't need your vote, doesn't need your approval, doesn't need your judgment, doesn't need your support or whatever, then your numbers mean nothing except in resistance. Mm. But because much of Africa has rapidly democratized, and, and, and this is a very important scheme for me, and anytime I speak to international media, I'm always trying to force them to pay attention to the reality of what's happening. But elections held in Somalia, you know, um, Liberia has had consistent elections since mm. it recovered from the war. Rwanda has had elections, Syria has had elections. You know, there has been steady democratization across the continent in the past 20 years. And much of it has not rolled back, even if there continues to be conflict. And so because of that, there is a generation that is waiting, that is being born 
into basic freedoms, constitutionality, and elections. Mm. And they don't even know about dictatorships. So when I, anybody who was born after 2000, the year 2000 in Nigeria, doesn't know anything. Because the young person will be 19 years old now and has no experience of a military dictatorship. And so because these, because now African leaders now need voters and supporters and goodwill and validation and approval of the majority, which they didn't really need in the 80s and 90s, when we were defined by war and dictatorship, mm. now the voter has become more powerful. Mm. And because the voter is disproportionately young, therefore young people have become more powerful. Mm. Yeah? Mm. Um, now, the flip side is that many young people should get involved, but I don't think enough of them are getting involved because I think that many of the young people are taking the freedoms and power that they have for granted. It is true that our countries are not being as well run as they should be, mm. But it's also true that they run much better than they were 20 years ago. Mm. You know, much better. Mm. Um, and I wrote an article for the Mail and Guardian, I think, last year, when uh, Mandela, Mandela's uh, centenary, and I said, it's fine for young South Africans to, to, to question certain legacies, but they want to remember that we are able to question these legacies now because of the freedoms that those that came before us won. Mm. And our job is to build upon the legacy, not mm. to get consumed by cynicism, because even they didn't have the privilege that we had now. So it's not for us to lament about how bad things are. It's for us to acknowledge how bad things are, but also acknowledge how better things have become and not give up on engaging governments until things get much better. And we met them. And I don't think many people understand the huge responsibility that we have to build upon the success that we were given. Mm. Oh, that's such a, yeah, there's that answer is so loaded. I could go into so many different ways, but I think that what you've said is so important, um, specifically about the fact, the reason why we're able to question uh, legacy and democracies because we now, because of what has happened in the past. That's so powerful and I think it's true. As much as there are a lot of things going on within the continent that people are like, oh, this is going on, that's going on. We are doing a lot better than what we were 20 years ago and that's a powerful kind of image that we need to remember, you know, and it's just important to build upon it. Now, I'm Chida, I wanted to now speak about yeah. Statecraft Inc. How was that formed? Because I've known about uh, Red Media for quite a mm. while, um, but I, I, I was kind of when mm. I heard about Statecraft Inc., I wasn't sure. Was this formed before mm. uh, Buari's first? Mm. Um, you know, before you guys were involved with Buari's campaign initially, his first one, not the second one, or was this mm-hmm. formed along the way? Because mm-hmm. let's just, I mean, let's just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, celebrate. Let's just, let me just, well, I'm trying to find the right word, but it's like, I've not been in Lego so long. Like my slang is gone, but you know, let's just like yeah, talk about the people that you've helped to get in presidency. I mean, from Ghana to Nigeria mm-hmm. to Senegal, mm-hmm. um, where mm-hmm. else? I mean, that, like, that's quite a huge thing. Mm-hmm. So at what point was Statecraft yeah. Media, I uh, was straight, sorry, Statecraft Inc. Um, formed? Yeah, Statecraft Inc. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess this craft is another accident. Um, <laughs> so what happened was we had a magazine uh, at the time, a print magazine called Why Africa, Why Online, Why Why Africa. Yeah. And we were trying to get the president of Nigeria, and we also had a PR company. So we had the magazine company, and we had a PR company. 
for the management company, we were trying to get the pregnant of Nigeria at the time, this was German land, for an interview. And if people kept saying, no, 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 no. I was just kept following up, I think, for about two or three months. Mm. Um, and then there was a crisis that they had. And I think they did an interview with a popular musician. It didn't go out well. There was a backlash amongst Nigerians. I said Nigerians online, and they panicked. And they kind of needed someone to... They need to talk to, in their own words, a credible platform. And so they called her and said, look, I made this request. We're ready to talk to you now. And so we did that interview and we published it. And then the, 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 the special advisor to the president, who helped us get the interview, said, look, I hear you have a PR company. Yeah? Would you also be willing to, 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 to handle the reputation of the president for the election? And we said, well, absolutely. That would be a dream come true to work on that level. And so it was after doing that that we now spent, so we did that in 2011. After doing that, we now spent some time thinking, look, we're very interested in governance, we're very interested in public policy, um, reputation management and consulting for politics and governance is more is different from just working for brands. And so we thought we had to create a special vehicle for this. Because unlike a PR brand, sometimes you work for PR brands that you're not really passionate about, you like the company, you're going to work hard for the company, you want to do your job. But unlike politics, you know, working for a brand is, can be different. You may not have an, an emotional attachment. Mm. Or politics is a completely different set of indices. And so we thought we need to create a special company for that. And that's how we created Statecraft. And Statecraft uh, worked with the uh, Nigeria's Minister for Finance at the time, Ngozi Okonje Weala, and did some you know, local work. But then it really didn't blew up to full size into the Buhari elections. Mm. Um, and we were invited to so do this. I was making, and again, we were invited for that. Like, there was no plan, so to speak, <laughs> uh, to, to, to get this client or to do this work. Because of the way that politics works in this environment, there's no, there are no open bids, there are no call for applications. Yeah. You know, so it's almost like your reputation has to precede you. Mm. And again, and I keep saying that when we're doing the Buhari elections, I, because I'm a Nigerian, well, I was also lucky that the boy, the boy was a candidate that I personally believed in. So, um, and so we made, I, I was very excited to do this work with everything I had because I wanted this change for my country. So I think it was the intensity of my own personal and that Debola and all our, many of our team organizations mm. and our competence that led to that kind of a result. Mm. Now, of course, once we did that, then the expression was spread across the continent and outside. And so again, we invited to do Ghana, and you know, and, and we've worked in other countries that we didn't necessarily work in the elections itself. We advised um, uh, um, um, Raleigh Odinga in Kenya, and we advised candidates in Liberia, and I spent a month advising the candidates in Liberia, in Syria. And sometimes we advised candidates to step down, uh, sometimes we advised them to join coalitions, you know, but over the past, since 2015, we've been lucky to work in elections that we've won. So we've, we've won four presidential elections now. When I say we've won, we mean the candidate has won because it's the candidate's victory and it's the party's victory and it's the country's victory. We're just here to support them. But we've been lucky for the Jonathan elections, the Buhari elections, the Kenyan elections, and just last month, the Senegal election. So, so and, you know, we're just incredibly proud because, again, like I say, I was born into a dictatorship. Yeah. I didn't have my first taste of democracy until 1999 when I was, what, 16. 
Mm. So to be part of helping strengthen democracy across the continent in Francophone Africa, in Anglophone Africa, it's such a huge privilege. And so Statecraft is one of the companies that I'm most proud of because we're doing something that nobody has done before, like there's no one to learn from. Mm. We're literally clearing this path by ourselves. So I truly, I mean, that's... uh, I think that also I, I stand to be corrected, but I'm not so sure that I, I'm aware, like it doesn't come top of mind of another kind of company that is doing the kind of work that you're doing. So you almost are, um, you know, you, you're almost carving out this path for this sort of uh, system within the continent, which is, mm-hmm. which is awesome. But I do have to ask a few questions, um, you know, just with the clear kind yeah. of like the elephant in the room. So you mentioned about how you had supported uh, Good Luck Jonathan and then Buari, who are on opposite ends, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does that work when you decide who it is that you're going to support? How far does principle go over um, money? So, um, you know, how do you know? Mm-hmm. Or do you totally detach yourself mm-hmm. emotionally um, where that's concerned? Because I can imagine in that mm-hmm. case, it can get you guys into a bit of a, a situation. Um, if you support a candidate and then they get into power mm-hmm. and they say, for example, they let people down, then what do you do? How do you decide which campaigns mm-hmm. you will and won't work on, who you will advise mm-hmm. and who you won't um, in order to be able to protect the business? Because yeah. it's, it's probably really, I, th- that I think is probably yeah. one of the biggest danger points of the work that you do. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And um, it's something to get, like, like you said, because we are uh, learning as we go. And um, we are completely, completely confident in learning as we go. And when you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, sometimes you will take parts that you shouldn't have taken and you learn from them. Mm. Um, in, with the Buhari election, the process of selecting a candidate to work with is completely intuitive, which means that you take every candidate in a case by case basis. In, it's more it's more emotional when it's your own country, mm. yeah, um, because you are involved. And again, it's not like working for a beer brand or a telecom company. This is your country. This is not what a telecom company does doesn't really affect your life. What a bank does may not affect your life. Mm. What a government does affect mm. your life. And so, in our own country, we get emotional. The reason, I mean, my decision not to work for the government. In, in this last election, even though I kept saying everywhere, as far as I know, he's going to win this election. You know, I know he's going to win this election because he has a strong personal drive and support. And so to make that decision to still not work for him was an emotional decision, sort of a business decision. And I always say to my team members, even if you had decided to work for him, it wasn't an unethical decision. You know, he's a client, a legitimate client, you know, to democracy, the free and fair election. But for me, it's difficult to not be attached if it's my own country. Mm. And again, that's something, sometimes you need mentors to tell you don't bring the emotions into business. And I, and I understand. Some people even tell you don't talk about the work you do, but they can also understand they're used, they used to those conventions. But I want to run the kind of business that I want to run. People I want to run the kind of business that I want to run. You know? mm. And so I said, there's nothing wrong with emotions. Emotions are part of human life. Yeah. So if we choose to be emotionally attached when it comes to our origin markets, then that's something we want to do. So that's that. When it comes to other countries, it's possible to have a reserve because, again, you're not emotionally attached. But still, because we are passionate about this, about nation building and democracy, those guide who we choose to work with. So I'll give you an instance. Um, before, I, dis- I stumbled upon Senegal 
as a country reading in, in, in 2014 mm. when I was writing my first book, How to um, How to Turn a Point Generation. And I was so impressed at the fact that Matthew Saar had changed his constitution to limit his own term in office. Mm. And I began to praise him publicly from then. Mm. And so when these people reached out to our people, it was, it was an easy decision because it was a person I already adored, you know. And so that kind of gives you an insight into the kind of decision. There is no, there is no, like any business, there is no, this. there are no hard and fast rules, but it's often a, what's our mission? Our mission is to deepen democracy. Our mission is to galvanize young people. Our mission is to build nations. Mm. And so when candidates reach you and you need candidates, you want to ask yourself, does this person sit with our heart's deepest heart's desire? Mm. And even if it's not a hell yes, it has, there has to be a fit. There has to be a, when I sleep at night, I will be proud mm. of working with this candidate. When I'm 18, I'm telling my children about my life, I should be happy to say we did this mm. in Burkina Faso, in South Africa, or in Kenya. Mm. And that's kind of the decision, that's kind of the way that we do that. So mm. guided by why are we in this field in the first place? Now, um, Chile, just before we let you go, um, for you, uh, I, I'm also really fascinated with how the, the continent is so diverse. And as you've mentioned, you, I mean, you mentioned work within the continent that I was not even aware that you guys had done. So how do you go about, um, when it comes to researching mm. and doing that sort of work? Because one of the biggest issues from a media mm. perspective within the continent is number one, we're not unified. Number two, there's not enough information that goes out that mm. is credible from different countries. So if you're not in Nigeria, for example, you're not very sure that the news mm-hmm. that you're getting is the legitimate news and this is a situation we're having in the continent you know yeah. um and everything so for you guys yeah. how do you ensure that you're able to properly um mm-hmm. advise people you know when you mention about uh, perhaps you need to step mm-hmm. down and, and that sort of thing how do you do that if you're not either from that country of origin right and the, so i always say the first thing is extreme humility mm. so we never even in Nigeria, we never assume that we know what people are thinking or what they want to do. Mm. We always assume that we are... It is something that sometimes we tell clients, they're like, so the only thing that we are completely ignorant because our job is really to understand what people are thinking and what people are feeling. So we come in assuming that we know nothing. And the first thing we do is spend time just gathering the data. I remember in Sierra Leone last year in February, I just got into the got into Freetown and just spent the next two days just traveling around the country, mm. just focus grouping, pooling and you can see. And we came back to to, to, to meet with the client in another in another city. We couldn't believe the amount of data we had amassed in two days. Mm. And you know, because we said we cannot take a step in this country unless we are in sync with the citizens and not just citizens in the city centers, but those in the rural areas. So that's the first thing. That's the Actually, the most important thing that we remember that we are not the experts on this country, that the citizens are the experts. And our job is to channel the expertise of the citizens, to understand them. Um, The second thing is also that all of us in Pittsburgh are very passionate about the continent. And so we are rapid information consumers. So most of the articles I write for CNN or the Mail and Guardian or OZ or Quartz, 
are often about the continent. I'm deeply interested in elections in, in, in Zimbabwe, deeply interested in elections. In, I mean, sometimes I write about nations that the international media is not even interested in. I write about Mali, or I write mm. about, you know, um, 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 Gabon. You know, I write about the uh, Republic and all these other nations that are flourishing in democracy. And so we have a deep curiosity about Africa. I have a very personal vision about West and Central Africa that I've not even shared with anyone because I need to go and build the capacity to implement that vision. So we're deeply passionate about Africa in a very personal way. You know, I'm more likely to spend my vacation in Abidjan than I am to spend it in, in, in Shanghai or, or in the Philippines because I have a deep connection. So we are lucky mm. that first, it's not a job, just a job. We are deeply personally interested in the continent. Mm. But also that when we get into a country, um, and, so, and this, what you mentioned is absolutely right. I'm, I'm very passionate about building a media network that truly unifies the continent in a way that is not, it's not, a, it's not just a business, area. it's not just, oh, Africa is a great market, let's explore it. It's that Africa's people need to be connected. It shouldn't be so difficult for me to know what's happening with a young person. I shouldn't be more familiar with what's happening in Tennessee or in, in Los mm. Angeles than I am with what's happening in Yaoundé or, you know, in Malindi, you know? Mm. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. There is a disconnection. And that's something that I am personally passionate about. Not in a way because sometimes I'm in for it with people who want to invest in the continent. They're looking for business opportunities. And that's great. But, you know, again, anybody who can carefully understand the threads that tie the passion of a young person in Kenya and a young person in Gabon and a young person in Sierra Leone and a young person in Botswana, anybody who's able to be patient and dedicated enough to figure it out can truly build a media platform mm. that forces all of us to understand that we are Africans and that this is a significant identity that we have not yet explored. And, you know, to me, I've said... If nobody's going to do it, then ultimately I'm going to get the resources myself yeah. and I will try to do it. So, Chide, I have three more questions for you. One of them um, is That's when it comes great. to, there are some leaders within the continent that have overstayed. They are there for a very long time, right? I wouldn't want you to name them. <laughs> I can imagine yeah. the conflict. One of them is from the country <laughs> I'm originally from, so let's, I need to be able to land, okay? Yeah. Um, so... For you, what right. what advice would you give? <laughs> what advice would you give to those leaders? I mean, we just saw the president of Algeria initially say that he was going to run for fifth term, and then all yeah. of a sudden he's not running. But then he's delayed the election, so it's it's yeah. almost the same thing. Yeah. But in 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 like a in yeah. a sentence, what yeah. what advice would you give to leaders who are holding on to power unnecessarily? Honestly, I have no advice for them. <laughs> I have no advice for them because a leader who chooses to subjugate his people is not someone that will be open to reason. Yeah. The only thing that oppressive leaders understand is resistance. And so my message will be for the people mm. themselves. Mm. And what I've learned from my work during elections, and you know, and myself and Gabriel, especially, have personal with presidents, we have with presidents, incumbent presidents, we have with all kinds of people. So one thing I have learned, and I know this for a fact, I said this, I remember in Ohio State University to young Africans, especially from Zimbabwe. This was a month before Mugabe came falling down. I said, look, dictators are human beings. No matter how much power they amass, they're human beings. Mm. And what I've learned from working in democracy across Africa is that human beings can always bring down other human beings. Mm. The only thing that stops a people from bringing down their leaders is fear. Yeah. 
Now, once the fear is somehow overcome, you will find out. I mean, look at, look at, I mean, you look at country, look at any dictator who has fallen down, look at Yahya Jannah, look at anybody. Mm. Before it happened, everybody said it's completely impossible. Mm. It's always impossible until it's done. Until a certain set of people, in, in Gambia's case, the Electoral Commission chairman said, look, we will declare the will of the people even if it costs me my life. Yeah. And he announced the results and he fled the country. If he hadn't done that, we will still have Jamia as president of Gambia. Exactly. And so my advice is not to the leaders. These are not people who are ready to change. My advice is to the people. Yeah. It's not true that countries cannot change. And to be honest, our countries are not that large. You know, they're not so large that we cannot change them. It's because we believe that these men are gods. Yeah. And they are not gods. They bleed, they cry, and they have areas of weakness. So our job as people is to organize, to send them a message that their time is up. Chide, what are your, your thoughts around um, the way that uh, African media and press in general covers African elections? Well, to be honest, uh, that's just a particular worry of mine. The problem is, is what I call a debilitating lack of context. Mm. Um, which is that we almost report our own continent the same way that Reuters and the Associated Press and CNN report our continent. Mm. We report it with flat narratives. Flat narratives. We just say, this is what's happening here, the people here, this is social media, mm. there's this. There's a, now I understand, I sympathize, there's a lack of resources. Mm. But I wonder whether it's a lack of resources or it's a lack of curiosity. Mm. I wonder if really lack of resources has blinded us to the reality that we might have the resources we're just not curious enough about ourselves. Mm. Sure. Um, you know, I don't know that I don't know that a journalist in in in, in Namibia or in, in Kenya or South Africa is genuinely curious about how people live their lives in Abuja. I don't know if you know it's in Lagos is genuinely mm. curious about how people live their lives in, 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 in Soweto. So I think I think that it's because we don't know ourselves. We don't, we don't yet know ourselves. To like a person, you have to know the person. Mm. To empathize with the person, you have to know the person. Mm. We don't watch enough movies. We don't see enough stories. We don't see enough music from all these parts of the world. And so we don't identify with ourselves. And therefore, we're not curious about ourselves. Mm. You know, and it's easy to blame that on resources, but that's not a resources challenge. That's a... Lack of a, curiosity. A, a, a curiosity challenge. Mm. Sure. Yes. And so that's what worries me about and Chile, when you think of um, when you think of the phrase "Africa state of mind," what comes to your mind? I don't. You know, I wrote, I tweeted, um, I, I tweeted a few weeks ago. I don't know what that is. Yeah. And you know, when I think of an African state of mind, I think of the, the you know, I think that the, the idea of African state of mind still lies in the times when there was a glorious attempt at African unity. And these were the times of Lubumba, Lumumba, and, you know, and then Mandela, and, 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 you know, all these greats, I mean, Kuma, you know. I think at that time, our collective reaching for independence from foreign invaders defined us and unified us. Mm. And even till now, those are the traditions that we, we tap into when we talk about an African state of mind. Mm. 
Right now, I don't know what that is. We are more likely to think that an African state of mind is a Wakanda state of mind. <laughs> and the Wakanda state of mind is not an African state of mind because it's not our... <laughs> Wakanda is not an African creation. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a black American uh, projection of what their homeland should have been. Yeah. You know, it's not our reality. It doesn't even connect remotely to our reality. It's not something... <laughs> that can galvanize us. So I think that there is something there in an African state of mind because we had a commonality, but we've not yet, ex- we've not yet interrogated it, therefore we can't really craft it. Mm. And I'm really not interested in participating in myths that are not real. Yeah. I mean, I understand why we, but I, it's not real to me. And so I'm like, can we start building that African state of mind. It's, it's a useful thing because we have commonalities that can that can galvanize us. Can we start the work now? Mm. Can we start the work? Thank you for listening. Make sure to join the Facebook group Africa State of Mind. Also, follow us on Twitter, Africa State of Mind. Africa State of Mind with Lika Sumba is all about great Africans doing great things on the continent and around the globe. It's all about changing the narrative in Africa. The podcast is definitely about curating tremendous African stories by Africans. Head to lifepodcasts.fm to find out more on the positive changes people are making on the continent in Africa State of Mind. Subscribe to this podcast at livepodcast.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.